I am Chris Buskirk. This is the Seth and Chris Show. Happy Monday, everybody. Penultimate segment of the Ultimate Show in Phoenix for a Monday. We're joined by Ned Ryan. He is the founder and CEO of American Majority. He's also a contributor to American Greatness. Ned, how are you? Hey, I'm doing well. Good to be back with you, Chris. Yeah, I'm glad. Thanks for coming on. Ned, you, um, you're sounding a bit of a, uh, a warning note for Republicans. You wrote, a, uh, uh, I think, a really timely piece for American Greatness called Red Flags Raised Blue Wave Building, question mark, is it? Is it so the, here's the question for you. Is a blue wave building? Well, so the, the, the real argument that I was laying out is, first of all, there should be some cause for concern, Chris. I mean, you look at these state legislative races the last year, and you know Republicans are losing in districts they've held for decades. And they're not losing to conservative opponents. I mean, I made the point, I'm, I'm obviously here in, in Virginia. There were a couple of races where, you know, Bob Marshall held the seat in Virginia's 13th uh, district in the state house. He'd held it for over 20 years, and he lost to a transgender candidate, and he lost by almost 2,000 votes. You know, Did the district change on him? You know, I, I think what happened is, uh, with Bob, is he didn't focus. And this is, you know, this is one of the things, if I'd had more time and really laid out, he was not focused on the right issues, and he's in a northern Virginia district where he's a very socially conservative candidate, which I applaud, but he wasn't talking about the issues that impact people's daily lives. In northern Virginia, transportation infrastructure is a massive issue. Well, guess what his opponent was talking about? Transportation, transportation infrastructure. Infrastructure issues. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things, again, if I had more time, Chris, I would have laid out is Republicans need to understand they need to be talking about, and this is, this is what happened to Hillary in 2016, she really wasn't talking about things that impacted the working class, and therefore the working class didn't vote for. Talk about issues that actually impact people's daily lives. That's what they want to know. Are you going to address the issues? And here in Northern Virginia, infrastructure is a huge issue, but you, know, you look at Virginia 50, where the majority whip, uh, Republican majority whip, outspent his opponent by over half a million, and he lost to a Bernie Sanders socialist candidate again, by almost 2,000 votes. And so, you know, you look at this in Virginia, you look at New Hampshire's fourth, where we have a two-to-one advantage for Republicans, a Democrat won, Oklahoma 46, where the Republican would win by 20 points. He stepped down, seat was vacated, the Democrat won the special by 20 points. You know, you look at Wisconsin's 10th state Senate district, Republicans had held that for 17 years. Trump won the district by 17 points. The Democrat won by 11 points last Tuesday night. And so what I wanted to do was raise some red flags and say, we should not be content here, people. Democrats are in, in, in enthused. There's an enthusiasm gap. In fact, you know, CNN just did a poll today that showed in the generic congressional poll, Democrats are at five points, but they have a 15-point enthusiasm advantage over Republicans. But the thing that was interesting about that poll, Chris, the exact same poll, middle of December by CNN, showed an 18-point advantage for Democrats in the generic poll. So it, it's interesting for me to look at some of these dynamics and go, okay, there are red flags that have been raised. We should be concerned. At the same time, when you see a generic ballot shrink to a third of its difference in a month, yeah, you know what happened between then and now? Well, the tax Something bill, for one thing. Plan. That's right. And so that's one of the points I made as I, I laid out, you know, a president under 50, uh, 50% approval typically loses 36 on average. Republicans only hold the House of Representatives by 24 seats. So I wanted to lay all those out, but then I said the narrative could change. Again, Republicans should be doing the fundamentals, voter contact, fundraising, messaging, all of those things. The tax plan is starting to kick in. Over 200 companies have given bonuses of some sort, whether it's bonuses, pay rates, 401k bonuses. The other point that I made, too, is 
Democrats, I, I've even asked some people that I, you know, I go up on uh, against on TV and said, you know, as a Democrat, what is your message for 2018? And I'm editing the comments because they were kind of colorful, but basically, how would I know? I have no idea what our message is in 2018. I'm like, what is it, impeachment, resistance, put us back in office so we can raise your taxes? One of them actually said to me, Chris, that's right. We would definitely raise corporate taxes. We'd raise the top bracket. I'm like, so it is. Your, your message is put us back in office so we can raise your taxes. And she laughed. And then the third point I made in that article <laughs> towards the end is, what if the narrative completely changes in 2018? And we're seeing this with the House Intel memo. Yeah, you know, what if things right. really start to break into the open and the narrative changes? So I wanted to raise a red flag and say, listen, there are trends that we should be concerned about. Let's do the fundamentals at the same time. 2018 might be a really interesting year that defies defies historical, uh, you know, the historical trends. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that, Ned, which is to say that I think Republicans actually have a strong hand if they just can figure out how to play it. (laughs) Well, you know, the the, the nasty habit that Republicans usually have is somehow managing to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. So, you know, I, I look at Republicans and go, please just do the basics. Please just do the basics. Figure out how you can get some policy wins. But make sure you're doing the fundamentals of voter contact, messaging to voters where they're at, and really addressing the needs that affect them day to day. And then, you know, do the best that you can. I, I told my wife after the vote on the Senate floor today, where the, you know, the 81 to 18, uh, they're, they're voting to open the government again, which, by the way, that's a whole other issue I'd love to discuss. But I said, you know, Becca, Republicans usually lose these shutdown fights uh, in the past. And you know what the one big difference is between now and then? It's this guy named Trump right? and his ability to message and go right back at them and, quite frankly, negotiate. I mean, I'm sure you saw the same thing, Chris, where Schumer was on the floor of the Senate complaining about how Trump wasn't talking, etc. I'm like, no, that's what you do as a negotiator. You lay out your deal, say, here's what I'm prepared to negotiate on, and you come back to me, but I'm done talking. And it was pretty amazing to watch Chuck Schumer complaining on the Senate floor, but Trump won. He won. It was, and it wasn't even close. I mean, I think Democrats no. maybe realized that they were not winning the PR battle. They thought it was going to be a layup, right? That that this was going to be a replay of the '90s and of 2013 with the with the prior shutdowns, where everybody was going to rally to their side and Republicans were going to take it on the chin. Not so much. Not so much. And you saw a poll. I think a lot of people saw the poll where it showed 60 percent of people thought it was not the right thing to shut down government over DACA, and. You know, this is just over the last couple of days. And so when you see six out of ten Americans saying this is not a good idea, I think Republic, uh, Democrats saw the handwriting on the wall and realized we'd better reopen government and we'd better figure out how we move forward in negotiating this. But I'm like, Chris, I mean, I wrote a piece for American Greatness, you know, my last piece before this one, just laying out. We've already laid out the parameters. Full funding for a southern wall. Stop chain migration. Stop the visa lottery system. Then, you know, potentially give these people green cards, and I know that there's some disagreement, but when it comes to the DACA Dreamers, maybe there's a path to citizenship at this point. And you know what I've also been thinking about, Chris, since then, since I wrote that piece? If there is, and and there's a big question mark if there is, a path to citizenship for these DACA Dreamers, you correlate it to the completion of the wall. And if the wall's completed in three years, fine. Five years, fine. Seven years, fine. But there's got to be something where there's a correlation between any path to citizenship for them and a completion of a wall. But... You know, the, 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 the parameters for a debate have already been laid out. So when, when Chuck Schumer sits there on the floor and goes, we don't know what the president wants in regards to immigration reform, like, I'm pretty sure most of us have a pretty good idea. No, everybody knows exactly what he, what, what he wants and what, what the Republican base wants. It's in the Goodlatte bill. 
That's right. Exactly. You know what? Exactly. And I've, I've made that point as well. Bob Goodlatte's film has laid out exactly in many ways what we hope and expect. And, you know, the other thing, too, that needs to be pointed out in this entire debate over shutting down government, DACA, all that stuff, I made this point in the piece, uh, I believe, that I wrote for you, but Democrats used to be for southern border uh, security. You know, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer, they all voted for the EMA sector wall. You know, Dick Durbin on the Senate floor in 2010 actually said we should end chain migration. Well, what's happened over the last six, seven, eight, ten years? I think they've been radicalized. I think in many ways the donors and the grassroots of the Democrat base have gotten a hold of these guys, and they realize what they were able to do 10, 11 years ago uh, almost makes it untenable for them inside their party. And it's amazing that you're watching this take place inside the Democrat Party. Nobody's really talking about it. The far left is eating the Democrat Party from within. Because that is, well, I would argue that is the Democrat Party, is the far left, <laughs> right? It is just a far left party now. It, it just, it, it, it isn't what we think of as, as, as um, the Democrat Party, let's say even of the 80s, early 90s. You know, there's no, um, uh, you know, there's no Dick Gebhardt left, a wing right. of the party left. There's no kind of middle American wing. It is, you know, it's a coastal party and it is, look, this is an existential issue for them because they believe that the only way that they can win long term is by importing more voters. That's right. That's right. And that's why I think, you know, the amazing, I was talking to a friend today and I said, you know, in, in all of this negotiation back and forth, Democrats have conceded two things and I'm not sure they realize it. They've conceded that there should be a wall because they've said we'll give funding for the wall. They've conceded that there should be actual funding for that wall. So now all we're discussing is actual funding and the amount of it. And that's, that's the big sticking point. We want $20 billion, period. The uh, I, I, well, we got to go to a break. When we come back, though, I want to ask you about uh, about the wall. I mean, is this a fight? Is this a, a fight over nothing, or is uh, or do they think that they can run on amnesty and win into in November? Ned Ryan is my guest. He is the CEO of American Majority. We'll be right back. I don't know, Ned. Do you think we're allowed to play that song, or is that somehow demeaning to babies who are not American-made? Ned? Ned there? What happened to Ned? We lost Ned. That's not good. All right, Bill's going to call Ned Ryan back because you know what a Phoenix needs? More Ned Ryan. Yeah. Let's uh, let's try and get him back uh, on the line. In the meantime, though, I just want to kind of flesh out some of the things that uh, that we were chatting about with with him. This look here is the issue: is that Republicans uh, are concerned, I think, rightly concerned over the trajectory of uh, of electoral politics right now, uh, heading into a what's sure to be a very contentious midterm uh, race. Oh, we've got Ned back. Ned, you're back. I am back. What happened? Technology is great until it's not great. I know. You missed my, uh, you know, we had great bumper music. We had, uh, what's that song called, Bill? By whom? That's what I was thinking. We had a Anyway, I had I had a great quip. At least I think it was a great quip. But I was looking for you to come in and second it or give me a harumph or at least a a polite laugh. Nothing. No Ned Ryan. You know what? I'm blaming technology. I was sitting here patiently waiting. You said, where's Chris? Bring me back at any moment. And uh, <laughs> I guess we dropped connection. There we go. Yeah, see, I wanted to know, is this is this song demeaning to uh, if your baby is not American made? Guess what? I don't care. I like the song. 
Right. <laughs> that, that, here's the question. Look, we're going. We're heading into what's going to be a contentious election. Fine. Midterms always are. Elections always right. are. I still right. think that Republicans have the stronger hand if they can play it. So how do you how do you see this working out over the next? I guess it's ten months, basically now or nine months. Um, what, what, what do you think? What do Democrats do? Where do? How do they position themselves? Boy, when I hear Chuck Schumer and Dick Durbin talking about amnesty, they are sounding like they believe they can run on amnesty as a major centerpiece for their campaign. I think they're mistaken. I think they're they're dramatically mistaken. Um, you know, as, as they were taunting Republicans, saying you're risking everything on your tax bill. You know, I think that was a good calculated risk. It wasn't even a risk in my mind for Republicans to say we're going to actually pass a tax bill that gives American people their money back. Uh, I was so I, I, I laughed during that whole thing, Ned, where you, you'd hear Chuck Schumer and Dick Durbin and Pelosi up there say, "You know, you guys are gambling your majority on this on this on this tax bill." Boy, I didn't know they were so concerned about uh, about making sure the Republicans did well this election cycle. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. No, and I think I think Democrats are going to make um, another big bet on their side, in which they are going to play to their far left donors and base and say we're going to give these illegals uh, amnesty. And so I don't think I think they are seriously misplaying this because they're listening to certain voices, but not to the the, the middle of the road, common sense American working class. Yeah. I just don't see it working in such a way. Listen, people want to solve the DACA Dreamer situation. They want to solve it in a way that is you know, just and equitable. But we're not talking about amnesty for everybody that came in illegally of their own volition. And that's a completely different story. And so I think they're looking at some of these polls where, you know, a lot of the American people want to deal with the DACA Dreamer situation for. I think the newest figure is 690,000 uh, DACA dreamers. And then they're, you know, extrapolating that to mean millions and millions. And that's not, I don't think, what the American people want. I feel pretty confident in that and saying, do they want to deal with the DACA dreamer situation? Yes. Do they want to deal with all of the illegals and give them amnesty? Absolutely not. And so I think what the Republicans do moving forward is say, hey, we've, we've laid out the parameters, as we were discussing in the previous segment. They sell like crazy the tax plan, and I think what they need to do next, Chris, on this is say, we are going to do our best. If you give us the majority again in 2019, we're going to make the small business pass-through tax permanent, and we're going to make the individual rate permanent. And I think they really need to sell that, and I think they also need to talk about how they're going to responsibly deal with entitlement reform, because that, again, is one of the huge issues. I think Democrats are going to double down, again, on immigration, amnesty, but honestly, Chris, again, like I was saying in the previous segment, when I talk to Democrats that I'm opposite uh, of on TV, they can't give me a straight answer as to what the actual message is for Democrats in 2018, except for we're not them. And I'm like, at a certain point, you actually have to have a compelling vision for what are you going to do for the American people. And quite frankly, because they have, they have doubled down so long on identity politics, I'm not really sure if they have a message beyond identity politics. And it's it's kind of fascinating to watch. And again, if they're open and honest about what they really want, well, it's socialism. And I'm pretty sure the American people do not want socialism. So I, I really don't know what the message is and what Democrats run on. Republicans do the right thing. They do all the fundamentals. They message correctly on the tax plan. They continue to push the right things with this House Intel memo and, ch- and start to change the narrative. You know, I think they're going to lose some seats in the House, but I think they can keep the majority in the House and maybe even pick up a couple seats in the Senate. What do you think the best? Uh, what do you think the best options uh, are for taking a, picking up a seat or two in the Senate? Are 
You know, I'm I'm pretty optimistic. Uh, Josh Hawley in Missouri, yeah. the, the, the sitting attorney general. Yep. Um, and, and, and the reason I say this, I don't think there's going to be a messy, contentious primary where the establishment and the grassroots are going to try and take each other's heads off. There really is some consensus behind Josh. Uh, and that's a, that's a good Kevin. that's a good get, right? I mean, he's he's solid, and you know, not only do you flip uh, a D to an R, but you get a really good R. You, you do, and he's you know late thirties, so he's a young guy. He's really proven he's he's got some conservative credentials. You know, federal society loves him. So I tell people, listen, Josh Hawley, even though the establishment guys claim him, let's face it, uh, the federal society and a lot of conservative groups. We're behind him strongly, investing millions into his attorney general's race. So he's really an anti-establishment guy, and it's good to see the establishment guys come along. Um, I think we've got a, I think we've got a legitimate shot with Kevin Nicholson up in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll see. Uh, again, there's a primary up there, so we'll see who, if he gets through. But I, I like his chances, and I think he's got a legitimate shot of taking out Tammy Baldwin. Um, you know, outside of that, you know, we can look at West Virginia. You can look at some of the others. What do you think about a place like Ohio and Montana? Well, see, with Josh Mandel dropping out in Ohio, yeah. uh, I'm not really sure about our chances there. I think Rosendell in Montana is a very good candidate, but I'm not really sure that we've seen a compelling case for Montana and uh, you know the Montana voters to throw out John Tester. So I think what I want to see happen is Republicans be very aggressive on eight Senate races, make them spend money uh, in places they maybe weren't expecting to, and let's say, let's try and pick up two or three seats, give ourselves a little bit of breathing room in the Senate, and if we pick up more, that's great. Um, you know, but I, I would like to see us pick up two or three. And the, the way that we're going to do it is make them play defense on as many places as possible. And I, I think we've got a legitimate chance um, in, in some of these let me, let me ask you this, Nick, because we're running a little short of time. But just quickly, how do you look at you're, – you're not here. What, how do you look at the Arizona Senate race? You know, I, 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 I'm kind of curious now, now that McSally has jumped in that race. I know that a lot of the grassroots has gotten behind Kelly Ward. Um, you know, I think McSally just entered, what, a week ago. So I'm kind of just interested to see where everything shakes out on that front. But, again, I think Kelly Ward's got the grassroots locked down. So that's obviously what winning. Don't forget we've got Arpaio now in the race now, too. Oh, my God. Right, so right. we've got a, we've got a, we've got a <laughs> scrum here. It's, it's going to be You've weird got a for sure. primary coming up. Yeah. Ned Ryan, founder, CEO, American Majority. You can check him out. What's your Twitter? Uh, Ned Ryan, N-E-D-R-Y-U-N. Very good. And you can see his latest. Uh, it's up right now at americangreatnessamgreatness.com. Ned, thanks so much. We'll have you back again soon. Appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. I'm Chris Buskirk. Welcome back to the Seth and Chris Show. Boy, there's a lot going on on the um, on the on the so-called Russia investigation. There's a, a really interesting, um, really interesting analysis up at Law and Crime. It's uh, uh, written by lawyers, uh, kind of written by about and for, uh, by about and for uh, lawyers. But they have something uh, up today which is fascinating. Lost FBI texts could form basis for motion to dismiss in Trump team fight against Russia probes. So what's this all about? Well, they do a really good job of explaining it. They, go, they, uh, they explain it this way. The latest news that five months worth of text messages between FBI agent uh, Peter Strzok and, D- and DOJ attorney Lisa Page is sure to make supporters of President Donald Trump continue to claim that the Russia investigation is a politically motivated scheme. More importantly, however, Trump's lawyers will now be able to do the same. 
So this just to give a little background. This is uh, the, the the purpose of this site. It's uh, it's lawandcrime.com. It's not a it's not normally a political website. It's a legal analysis a website. So that's where they're coming from. They don't have an extra grind, particularly one way or the other. They just try and do good legal analysis uh, for people in the profession and for sort of interested observers. And so, of course, this is a big issue since it deals with the president of the United States and uh, what looks like an, uh, a serious abuse of, uh, of power by the Obama administration and, and then subsequently by elements that stayed in government even under the Trump administration. So Law and Crime continues. They say Strzok has already been outed as anti-Trump, leading to his dismissal from the probe and his past communication with Page showed a potential Justice Department bias towards Hillary Clinton. The fact that now nearly half a year's worth of text messages between Strzok and Page during the time leading up to Robert Mueller's appointment as special counsel weren't preserved by the Justice Department will surely fuel motions from Team Trump's lawyers against the investigations. Yeah, so six months, almost six months worth of texts between Strzok and Page. We've already seen their texts, and they're, they're, this, is, this is the one where they say that the they, they infer that the FBI investigation is, quote-unquote, an insurance policy in case Donald Trump uh, gets elected. In other words, they are plotting out a way between the Justice Department and the FBI uh, to try and somehow overthrow the results of an election with which they disagree. They're willing to use their government power from the Justice Department, from the FBI, law enforcement, in order to overturn an election. That's in the text we've seen. And then somehow, somehow, the FBI just happens to uh, not have gotten rid of almost six months worth of uh, their of the, of the text between these two who, the, boy, the texts we've already seen are horrible. Months of text messages don't just accidentally disappear. This is law and crime again. One past conversation between Strzok and Page indicated that former Attorney General Loretta Lynch knew there would be no charges filed against Clinton well before that investigation ended. Gee, how did she know that? Because the fix was in. Given the significant evidence of impropriety in the Clinton case, a foregone conclusion of innocence between the FBI wrapped up their investigation looks shady at best. Trump's lawyers will surely argue that that after those messages came to light, the DOJ intentionally lost those five months' worth of other messages. Look for Paul Manafort to jump all over this. He's all right, already fighting this this indictment, claiming that Mueller is overstepping his authority and shouldn't be running the investigation. Agreed on that. Throw in this evidence that the investigation may have been tainted before Mueller even took over and that the DOJ could be covering up damaging information and a motion to dismiss alleging prosecutorial misconduct is a near certainty. FBI agent Strzok was reportedly heading up the Manafort investigation before he was taken off the Mueller probe. But gee, and his, all of his texts just happened to go missing? Hmm, what a coincidence. Manafort's attorney might try to say that the missing text messages could contain exculpatory evidence or evidence favorable to the defendant, and therefore the court should get to the bottom of what the two said. However, two former federal prosecutors who spoke to law and crime both contend it would be difficult to get the entire indictment dismissed based on the text messages alone. Bill Thomas is a former federal prosecutor. Here's what he says. It depends on what FBI's retention policy is for text messages. It does certainly raise questions out of how, as to how these five months came up missing. Yeah, gee, I really wonder. 
However, the court is not going to just dismiss the case. If it, come, if it comes to it, the judge may hold a hearing to get that information through calling witnesses. Dismissal is the nuclear option. It would have to be something very egregious for a court to dismiss a case. Well, I don't know. How about destruction of evidence? That sounds pretty egregious. Boy, you know what? There's a lot of smoke. A lot of smoke. And we see little flames. I think there's a bigger fire in there somewhere. More on this when we come back with more of The Seth and Chris Show. This is uh, the Seth and Chris Show. I'm Chris Buskirk. A little more on uh, the, uh, the the mystery of the missing FBI text. Boy, th- every time you look at what the FBI and the DOJ has done with regards to Donald Trump over the past, gosh, it's almost, it's getting closer to two years now, about a year and a half, maybe a little, maybe it's 19, 20 months now. It just looks dirty. Everything about it looks dirty. You've got the uh, the text that we have seen. Uh, between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, in which they, in which they sure look like they were uh, plotting t- some type of uh, extrajudicial, shall we say, some type of uh, weaponizing of the law enforcement apparatus of the country against a candidate with whom they disagreed, and then the text, and then five months of their texts go missing, and then we've got we'll talk about it later, but then we have this uh, memo that the House Intelligence Committee has seen that Republicans uh, want. Release that Democrats are doing everything they can to hide. It's going to come out. It is going to come out. It's the the whole committee has seen it one way or the other. This thing is going to come out. And from people I talk to who are familiar with it, it is an absolute blockbuster. Everything that you think that that you have seen that you think looks bad, it just gets exponentially worse when you see this memo with regards to Fusion GPS and the dossier and all of the dirty tricks and the weapon is, and the weaponizing of the country's uh, law enforcement agencies against candidate and then President Trump. Anyway, back on this uh, really interesting analysis by the folks uh, lawyers over at Law and Crime about the about how Trump's lawyers, Manafort's lawyers, other people who uh, are representing defendants and potential defendants in uh, the Mueller investigation can use the FBI's apparent uh, well, it's called a loss. Maybe it is. It may find we may find out that it was a destruction of evidence. How they can use this to end to potentially end the investigation altogether. Bill Thomas, a former federal prosecutor, is quoted in this story as saying the court is not just going to dismiss a case. He says that would be the nuclear option. They might try and uh, they might try and find out what was in those text messages via compelling testimony. That would be second best. Uh, but if the prosecution, if the FBI, this is me talking now, the, if the prosecution, the FBI, the DOJ were found to have been hiding or destroying evidence, that would have serious ramifications for Mueller for the, for all of these cases or, or potential cases uh, up to and including dismissing all of them. He says the same would go for any future defendants in the case. If other members of the Trump campaign, if an, or sorry, if another uh, member of the Trump campaign Trump campaign gets hit with charges, they'll just throw these missing texts back as evidence that the probe was tainted from the beginning, which it sure looks like it was. Of course, lawyers will have to find some sort of evidence of foul play for this to mean anything. That could include proof that the text messages were intentionally deleted, recovery of some of the texts should they include incriminating information or other evidence of political bias in the investigation. Another former federal prosecutor, Henry Hockheimer, explained it this way. He said, though it doesn't look good and will only further embolden conspiracy theorists, 
his word. I don't see how this could be used to attack any charges already filed or future charges. A judge will focus on whether clear evidence supports the charges in response to a, a, to a motion to dismiss. Perhaps a trial this stuff could be used to cross-examine the agent for purposes of showing bias. Hmm, maybe, but uh, you know where there's... Uh, where, there's a, where there is smoke, there is fire. Barring the discovery of evidence favorable to the defendants, this development will, rightly, will, will like this is long crimes analysis. They say barring uh, discovery of evidence favorable to the defendants, this development will likely result in a slight headache for Mueller as his team responds to court filings by claiming that the investigation is on the up and up and that Strzok's dismissal was proof that politics have no place in the Russia probe. Except that Strzok wasn't dismissed. Okay, he was just reassigned. He wasn't fired for what he did. He just went on to he just got assigned to a different part of the building. He's not he's not part of the Mueller investigation, but he kept his job. Okay? This is the issue. Look, the Mueller investigation is ultimately a political issue. There are there that has a legal component to it. And for, in terms of the politics of this, everything I think looks just dirty, dirty, dirty for the Democrats, for Obama, for Clinton, for Mueller, uh, and everybody around them for Obama and the and the and his uh, FBI and DOJ. That goes a long way towards uh, clearing Donald Trump's name in many quarters. Now, t- Trump supporters, we knew that from all we knew from day one that this was a hoax. This is a phony story that was ginned up by people who just didn't want to live with the results of last year's election. That goes that goes for all the that goes for the Democrats. That goes for all the never Trump Republicans, the people at National Review, the people at Weekly Standard, okay, the people who just can't get over it. Who said who who you know, who sit back and are content to have Hillary Clinton rule the country, corrupt Hillary Clinton, happier with her because she doesn't uh, because she doesn't say naughty things on her Twitter account. Yeah, well, for the rest of us who actually have to live out here in the real world, well, we'll take conservative constitutionalist judges. Thank you very much. We'll take reduced a reduced tax burden and increased employment and a booming stock market. Thank you. Yeah, we'll have that. And uh, the rest of you, well, you just look more and more foolish as time goes by. You know, it's not um, it's it's not uh, it's not only people on the right. That's, this is one of the things that's been very interesting. There are a couple of people, a couple, and a couple usually means two, and it might not be more than that, on the left who are very skeptical of, uh, of the whole Mueller investigation and, uh, and of a lot of the things that the left and the Democrats do in this country. One of them is Glenn Greenwald. He um, formerly was an investigative reporter with The, uh, with the Guardian in the UK. He is um, uh, he's an interesting person. With somebody with whom there's lots of things that we would disagree, and yet uh, there's a really fascinating, uh, the really fascinating piece at New York Magazine, which is very much a left-wing magazine. It's where Michael Wolff uh, often writes. Uh, Michael Wolff, uh, famous for about three or four days, was it on the on the book that came out, Fire and Fury, uh, that led to uh, to Steve Bannon being summarily dismissed from Breitbart. Uh, that is where Michael Wolff often writes. That tells you something about uh, New York Magazine. But uh, it says they're running a story right now called Does This Man Know More Than Robert Mueller? Glenn Greenwald's War on the Russia Investigation. 
it's kind of long, so I'm just going to pick out some uh, some of, of the highlights. But he says, it's 1045 Rio de Janeiro time. Glenn Greenwald and I are finishing dinner at a deserted bistro in Ipanema. The restaurant, which serves its sweating beer bottles and metal buckets and goes heavy on the protein, is almost aggressively unremarkable. English menu, blah, blah, blah. He goes, uh, he goes on Greenwald, who's now 50, has seemed to live in his own bubble in Rio for years, since well before he published Edward Snowden's leaks and broke the domestic spying story in 2013, which landed himself a Pulitzer Prize, a book deal, and in time the backing of a billionaire, a billionaire that's uh, Pierre Omidyar, who is the founder of eBay, his backing uh, a lot of what Glenn Greenwald does. And uh, he started something called The Intercept, uh, you can go on The Intercept. It's a website. It's free. And they do a lot of investigative journalism there. They, they are all card-carrying members of the left. But they actually do investigative journalism. And uh, it's nice to see that regardless of which uh, which way, which side of the aisle it comes from. Somebody who wants to f- just find the truth, whatever it is, I'll take that. I'll take that. Anyway, more on this uh, when we when we come back from this break. Then at the top of the hour, we've got John Hinderocker from the Powerline blog talking with him about uh, the prospects for 2018 and some other things as well. I'm Chris Buskirk. This is The Seth and Chris Show. We'll be right back. I'm Chris Buskirk. Welcome back to the Seth and Chris Show. A few more uh, choice tidbits from this interview, wide-ranging wide interview with Glenn Greenwald of The Intercept. Uh, he says, uh, he says, here's what he says. Well, let me just get to it. He says, but he seems even more on his own since the election, meaning Greenwald, just as, agita- just as the agitated left has regained the momentum it lost in the Obama years. This is New York, that's New York Magazine's comment. He says, the reason is Russia. For the better part of two years, Greenwald has resisted the nagging bipartisan suspicion the Trump world is in one way or another compromised by a meddling foreign power. I would strongly dispute the notion that it's bipartisan. If there's a conspiracy, he suggests it's one against the president. Where others see collusion, he sees McCarthyism. Greenwald is predisposed to righteous posturing and contrarian eye-poking and reflexively more skeptical of the US intelligence committee than those it tells than though than of those it tells us to see as enemies and even if claims about russian meddling are corroborated by robert mueller's investigation greenwald's not sure it adds up to much some hacked emails changing hands none none all that damaging in their content maybe some malevolent twitter, twitter bots in his eyes the russia trump story is a shiny red herring one that distracts from the failures, corruption, and malice of the very establishment so invested in promoting it. And when in January, as journalism Twitter was chastising the uh, president for one outrage or another, Congress quietly passed a bipartisan bill to reauthorize sweeping NSA surveillance, you had to admit Greenwald might have been onto something. Here's Greenwald speaking. He says, when Trump becomes the starting point and ending point for how we talk about American politics, we don't end up talking about the fundamental ways the American political and economic and cultural system are completely, he's, I'll just say, screwed up uh, for huge numbers of Americans who voted for Trump for that reason. We don't talk about all the ways the Democratic Party is a complete disaster and a corrupt, sleazy sore and not an adequate alternative to this far-right movement that's taking over American politics. Greenwald's been yelling about this 
quite heatedly since before the election. In the Democratic echo chamber, inconvenient truths are recast as Putin plots, reads the headline of an Intercept piece published in October of 2016. The increasingly unhinged Russian rhetoric comes from a longstanding U.S. playbook, reads another from February of 17. As Mueller's investigation widened, no fallen domino, not the guilty plea of former, uh, uh, former Trump's national security advisor Flynn, nor the indictment of Manafort chastened Greenwald. When it was recently reported, actually, let me skip down. Look, here's the bottom line. Glenn Greenwald is a man of the hard left, and he has this right. He's got this right. This is the issue. This is, he, he understands that uh, politicians, whether it be on the right or on the left, need to address the issues that affect average people. That's why they're being elected. All of this Russia stuff, this is just about the elites trying to protect themselves and their prerogatives from the depredations of Donald Trump, who promised what? To drain the swamp. They don't want the swamp drained, and so they're throwing everything at him to try and distract from their own corruption. Now, what happens when they fail? I think Donald Trump winds up emerging stronger. We'll be back after this with uh, John Hinderocker from Powerline.